Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be with you again today. It has been a long time since my last podcast, a few months at least, um, and I will refrain from promising new podcasts or more regular podcasts because I certainly have said that before, but I will try to think about doing some more podcasts. It's always been a matter of if I have something to say or not, and I have something to say today. So I will uh, do that. I will be posting, regardless or Lord willing, a uh, two podcasts a month at the new podcast feed, Bible Prophecy Daily, which is something that Alan Kirshner has put together. Currently, I've only been uh, posting clips from previous podcasts and videos that I've done on that two times a month. But for example, today, I am using part of this podcast to clip up and use for that podcast. So in a sense, I am posting original content on it this month. But yeah, go subscribe to it, Bible Prophecy Daily. It's multiple podcast hosts, so it's kind of like a podcast network of teachers that Alan has curated, and it's a breath of fresh air if you're used to sort of what uh, passes for Bible prophecy-related content out there. You will really enjoy the content that is at Bible Prophecy Daily, and it is daily, or at least every weekday. One brief note as to what I've been working on in terms of ministry, and um, it's mostly about a film project that I tentatively have uh, scheduled for a year from now for its release, and it's basically uh, putting down everything that I know or think that I know about Bible prophecy into one script, into one easy-to-understand hour-and-a-half-ish film. It's a project that I've kind of always wanted to do. I feel like I have to get it all done and in, 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 in one place and easy to understand. Uh, but I've never really thought of it seriously as a film because I've never really believed that there was enough visual content related to it all to do it justice. And that was until I found AI art. And then I was um, really just blown away at what was possible with it. And it's going to take some tweaking and some things are going to need to uh, be done, but I think it can all be done in a year. And so I that's more or less what I'm trying to do right now, writing the script and then going into production after that. It will be self-funded, so no need for donations. I'm just mainly telling you so that you know what it is that I'm working on. Um, all right, so let's move on to the meat of this podcast, which is going to eventually end up talking about a very important and challenging verse in Luke 21. Hey, this is Chris from the future. Let me jump in here real quick and say that I never ended up getting to Luke 21, like I just said that I would in this podcast. I ranted a little bit longer on uh, what's become sort of a favorite rant of mine about the pessimism of the future and uh, all kinds of stuff that I've gone over time and time again, but I wanted to do so with a little bit more clarity and some more thoughts that I've been having about it. But anyway, I went longer on that part. And then didn't have time to do the Luke 21 thing, which was what I set out to do in the first place. So I decided what I would do is do another podcast about Luke 21 and make it an exclusive podcast that will be on the Bible Prophecy Daily podcast that I mentioned just a minute ago. So the Luke 21 section will be uh, on that podcast. And in this podcast, it will be all doom and gloom. Okay, enjoy. But before that, I want to talk about what is basically a really pessimistic view of the future for humanity. And I want to do that in the hopes of sort of lowering the bar 
as to what we expect to happen in the next you know few decades or or whatever so that we're not caught off guard because in a sense i believe that the degree in which we are caught off guard not just as individuals but as the church is also the degree to which we are prone to the deception of satan and the antichrist but also in a more near-term benefit of lowering your expectations assuming that what is coming is not necessarily the end times but just sort of another um, piece of the puzzle being put into place but perhaps for example we will not make it to the end times still lowering our expectations with regard to what is likely to happen in the next few years is helpful for our spirits, I believe, because um, if you truly believe in your heart that what's coming is not possible, and that if it does happen, then something has gone wrong, then you are um, just vulnerable in general to all kinds of stuff, whether or not that vulnerability is to the deception of Satan and the Antichrist, or just vulnerable to despair and all the things that uh, come with that. So big picture thesis is that the new world order will really take over. And everything that the World Economic Forum and all this crazy, woke, environmental, communistic, uh, um, eat the bugs and complete totalitarian police state, all that stuff, the worst version of that, will take over. There's nothing that I can see that can stop it as it currently is other than divine intervention, of course. If, as God has done so many times in history, just, you know, decides that it's not time for that, then, then it all falls apart and this whole system that they've built is worthless. I mean, it's nothing compared to God's will, obviously. But if this is, as I suspect the building or what will one day become in the uh, the the ten king or the first stage of the ten king system then if you will it it is a part of god's will or at least it is allowed by god uh, as evidenced by him telling us ahead of time in his word as it sets up the climax of this age. So I believe that without divine intervention, the new world order really will take over and that we need to prepare ourselves mentally for that and go through all the thought processes to make sure that this theory is correct. And let me say at the outset that I would love to be really wrong about this. I would love to have to apologize to everyone for being so pessimistic and endangering this uh, great renaissance. Um, you know, and that after eight years of a Ron DeSantis or something presidency, we fix all the voting problems and drain the swamp and Anthony Fauci and Klaus Schwab are tried for crimes against humanity and everything is back to freedom and justice for all. That would be great. But as we go through this, I don't think that that's where the smart money is. And in one sense, I think most of you know that 
But if you're like me, and I think this is why I'm saying this, is that there's a part of me that doesn't really believe it or that is holding out enough hope for like the Alex Jones thesis, which is that humanity is waking up and, you know, if we can get enough people to wake up, you know, they can all turn the tide. And I think that's sort of like the secular, informed secular thesis too, which is that, you know, it's this belief that eventually hum humans will turn into a Star Trek society, we'll get all the, the bugs worked out and we'll all sort of agree to agree and everything is going to be okay in the future. But in the meantime, we've got these bad actors that, event, you know, that's sort of this idea that we'll get it figured out eventually, which I don't, I have a pessimistic view of the nature of man uh, that I don't think, I think it's getting worse, not better, and it will continue to get worse. I guess what I'm saying is that there is a belief in the Alex Jones thesis that if we can just wake enough people up, that there will be enough resistance to this madness because it is madness all the things that the eating the bugs and and shutting down you know all this depopulation stuff and everything that, that we they do and say that is woke and crazy and we know it is we say this is too crazy for enough people to believe it for it to take over i think that's where the problem is we we see the absolute insanity of it and we see that there's no way to convince enough people of it to actually have them take over there will be literal resistance against it and therefore it won't actually work and that's what i'm here to say i think it will work but in order to understand why i am so pessimistic about it we need to understand the nature of power and propaganda the consent of the governed um so let's talk start with power power is the main metric that matters in any kind of run-up of a totalitarian system what do i mean by power I guess it starts off with the most basic version, which is control over the military. Um, in our world, that most especially means control over the nuclear arsenals. That's power. Uh, second tier probably is the power over the ability to uh, imprison people. So the, the uh, power of the state to imprison you for really any reason, that's power. That's power. To take you off the board because they've decided to, that's power. And then really a lot of the other stuff is more or less relegated to the corporations in our day. Uh, the power over the food, the banking, your ability to transact. These things can be relegated to corporations where that's not necessarily been the case in past totalitarian systems. And part of why I'm so pessimistic is because that structure has been enshrined in the World Economic Forum model of what they call uh, shareholder capitalism. So we know that uh, Klaus Schwab has bragged about having people in the cabinets and they certainly control the governments and that's obvious, but it's also the control of the corporations. We've seen that and we'll talk about that more as we progress, but power is the first thing. Well, another aspect of the power is that unlike previous totalitarian systems, which have a life cycle for the most part, you know, the idea is that they, at least in the communist version of, of uh, totalitarianism, they promise a utopia, they lie to everybody at first, then they, they use those lies to consolidate power. Once they have power and it starts to be obvious that the utopia probably isn't going to happen, it doesn't matter because the power is there. They can imprison their enemies and they, and all this other stuff. But eventually those systems break down because the consent of the governed 
uh, falls apart, and people have had sort of a, a release valve for that historically, which is the population is just bigger than the than the the people governing them, and they revolt, and then the whole system you know starts over. But because the tools that the powerful have with this great technological revolution, which includes robotics and AI and surveillance and digital control and so much more, all these new tools make it very unlikely that those without power can circumvent these new tools to, which are designed to keep that life cycle from completing. So for example, in China or whatever, they're very, uh, you know, they censor down to the minute thing that people say online or communicate with in any other way. In 1984, you know, it was everything was, you know, you're watched by your TVs and, and these kinds of things. And the idea there is that you can't even talk with somebody to even start, like in the French Revolution, you know, they're meeting in coffee shops and talking about what they were going to do, you know, and all these different sort of gatherings that people used to do as a precursor to revolution. Well, that can't happen in a new system. And that's like the very first seed that needs to happen before you can even get to organizing in any kind of real way or whatever. So the the inability to do even that first step is now thwarted this normal life cycle of, um, of totalitarian systems. But digital surveillance is just the tip of the iceberg. I think that they'll have tools such as you know, robotics will develop, certainly if there's incentive for countries to develop in a mass scale slaughter bots, like if there's a war, slaughter bots is an excellent band name if you are looking for one. Uh, but really drones, you know, and, and, and these robot dogs with guns on them and in conjunction with AI, in conjunction with, um, you know, in, as I say, incentives for government to produce these things on a massive scale, that changes the game in terms of who really does have the power in a military sort of, it, it, it makes fewer and fewer people really need to have that power. It's really, again, keeps going back to power over the money because now it's who own those, owns those factories and can get enough resources to produce enough bots. Now that's the person who's powerful. And that's kind of what I want to go with, with the next thing I really want to talk about in terms of these tools of power uh, and why I'm so pessimistic is propaganda. Propaganda is ancient. It is basically lies. It's synonymous with the word lies. If it wasn't, then they would just call it news. Uh, but propaganda is something that all governments do in order to get what they need, which is the consent of the governed. People that want to rule have long understood that you have to get at least a percentage of the population to just agree with what you say. And what they have found, I think, is that uh, a certain percentage of the population like, has no defense against propaganda whatsoever. Let's call it 20, 25%, maybe even 30% of the population are on the spectrum of, like the far end of the spectrum of believing authority. And so when they hear the newspaper say something or the TV say something, or in those days, a proclamation of some sort of the, from the throne, they can't help but believe it. And then you have another percentage of the people who will choose to believe propaganda because of pride. So propaganda, usually by its nature, is presented to people as 
hey, this is what the super smart people believe. Uh, the d super dumb people that are mean and racist, they believe this other thing. You don't want to believe that. What you want to believe is a super smart thing that only smart people believe. And then that, then, then you've got that 30% up to what, 40, 45%. And I should back up and say, those numbers are really good. Those numbers are only if the propaganda is historically been very good. And ideally, if there's been some kind of war or some other traumatizing event, economic collapse, people are hungry, some other sort of black swan that makes people predisposed to believe the, you know, whatever it is that's telling them a good thing. So that 30, 45% is like in a best case scenario of the, of the old form of propaganda. You could get a certain percentage of people just because you said it, you get the other percentage of people because of pride, and the rest probably because they have to, because they're hungry, because there's trauma, because there's war. But those numbers are good enough to rule with an iron fist, even at close-ish, a little less than 50%. And the reason is because if you can get enough people to buy in, at least to where they're not against you, then you can rule, you, you consolidate the, the tools of the day, military uh, imprisoning power, killing power, and the fear that you get from controlling that power takes the, let's say, 65% of the people that know you're wrong and are against you. The, there's only a percentage of those people who would actually be outspoken about it. It would do something as a result, you know, they're all fearful because now you've got this power and you've said, hey, we're going to kill the people that disagree with us because they're terrorists and enemies of the state. And obviously everybody knows they're bad, so we're going to kill them. So now you've got this 65% of, of people who know you're wrong are in fear. So what's the percentage of people that actually speak out against you or try to uh, uh, meet and, and, and talk against the government? It's a, it's a very small percentage, something like 15%. So now you can use that power that you've consolidated to kill or imprison that 15%. But one of the reasons I'm so pessimistic is that those numbers, as bad as they are, are no longer relevant. Those numbers are obsolete. And the reason is that it is so much easier to get those numbers way higher than they used to be. And the reason is AI. Well, I shouldn't put all the blame on AI because certainly advertisers for the last, uh, you know, decades or I guess probably almost a uh, hundred years have been refining what makes people do stuff. There are papers written and lots and lots of ink spilled and studies done and psychology stuff, work that's been done as to what makes people do certain things. That research has been done for nefarious purposes, for capitalist purposes, for all kinds of reasons, but we have refined what it is that makes people do stuff. So um, even without AI, we would have been uh, worse off if that tool got in the wrong hands. But now with AI, and there's really two types of AI that I'm thinking of. One is what you might think of as curative AI, and one is generative AI. The curative type would be a more or less simple algorithm that was developed, I don't know when it was developed, but it's certainly used in social media contexts. This is um, where it just, it's optimized to serve you up what it thinks will most likely keep you engaged and on the platform. And that simple algorithm sort of unleashed a bit of a monster, uh, whether it was intentional or unintentional, I don't know, but it's certainly uh, what appears to keep us most engaged is anger and hate and different things like that. But that's really not where I want to go with it. I mostly want to say that um, they have now, through, through curative AI, 
been able to keep us in these hate bubbles and those hate bubbles really get to be served to whoever they want it to be served. That's really the thing is that they can serve you the other person's hate bubble now that they know that that's what's really powerful. Then it's just about serving that to somebody else in their, what they think is their news feed on their Apple phones or whatever, you know, now that they know what it is that's the most likely to sway a person to whatever it is that they want to do, which was uh, discovered through that AI and other people in their bubbles, they can now serve that to other people. So that's one thing is that whoever controls those companies uh, can sway that initial 30 and 40% just through curative AI. I think we're more like 50, 55% uh, just based on normal propaganda stuff and that kind of AI. But there is a new kind of AI on the scene, which is a generative AI that can use a lot of those same things. But if its goal, if it's optimized to, uh, to get to... Uh, achieve a goal, how to get a person to do a certain thing, then over many different trials. So let's say, you know, the old thing about AI is like you play it against itself a, a billion times in chess and it will become like a master at chess. Well, you can do the same thing with, uh, if you give it enough data to determine what it is that would manipulate somebody. If its goal is how to manipulate a person to do X and then try that a billion times and, and it can generate different sort of uh, versions of text, you know, or versions of emails, uh, it can become so persuasive that, that, you know, what I was talking about before about, oh, well, you know, these psychologists for years have written papers and done studies about what makes people do stuff. But an AI trying to, to learn that same thing, to optimize for what makes somebody do stuff, can like advance that a billion years. And now it's going to be this incredibly persuasive thing. It's going to be so powerful in its uh, ability to persuade that now it becomes on who has the power to unleash that for their goal. And Obviously, the people with money do. The people with money are going to unleash it for more control. And so it now takes that propaganda uh, 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 tool from a 65 to more like 70, 75, maybe even 80%. I do think you have a natural cap at around 80% because like there's 20% of people on the spectrum of like believe government no matter what, I think there's an uh, equal and opposite personality type that... Uh, is completely contrary to the bone that that by nature of it being said will not believe it. And so that 20% will always exist on the other end of the spectrum, no matter how persuasive the AI is or how persuasive the propaganda is. I think that you only have to look as far as 2021 and the great propaganda uh, avalanche regarding the vaccines in which probably a trillion dollars worldwide was spent on getting us all to believe that the vaccine was safe and effective to know how persuasive that um, something like that can be. And I don't think that was the full might of AI at all. It was just mostly money and our current state of curative AI and psychology and the rest of it. But mostly that was everybody being on the same page, all the corporations, all the governments to put the money towards uh, a single propaganda message to the point where, you know, we saw these 70% numbers, like something I just never would have even believed that you could get normal 
people that maybe didn't lean all the way to the 20% contrarian, but, you know, we're 35% contrarian or, you know, mostly on that end of the spectrum, even they got swayed by it. It was that powerful. And so imagine how hopeless this will be when you take all the things and put them together, not just the psychology, not the, just the curative AI, but the generative AI that spent a long time figuring out what makes people tick and combine that with maybe the most important thing, which is trauma. Um, we didn't even have that much trauma with the COVID thing early on. I mean, that was mostly uh, a trauma that they sort of made happen. But what if we actually had a real trauma, a prolonged war where they could show us the images of death and destruction and, and children and or, or uh, a nuclear holocaust and, and a nuclear winter and famines and all the stuff that goes with that or you know really any uh, an economic collapse complete economic collapse just on the, on a level of no nothing we've ever seen in which there's a tons of famine if they have that kind of um, trauma then they can use this machine this propaganda machine to hit that natural limit of 80 percent with no problems it's going to just max out at that 80 percent and just redline and the problem there is that it's kind of like a mandate. When uh, somebody wins an election in a landslide, they say he has a mandate. He can do all the stuff on his platform because so many of the people are with him. And they were totalitarians can do what they wanted to do with 30%. Imagine what they will do when trauma is there and with this kind of propaganda and they have a mandate of 80% of the people that are with them. And this is where I think people would say, well, not in my area. You know, nobody's going to eat the bugs where I'm at and nobody's going to believe all the woke stuff and, and the climate stuff and all the different things that they're saying. We're just never going to buy it. There, there's no way, like with the vaccine, that that person that you didn't think would buy it would buy it. Well, again, I think that you're thinking of a future in which everything just remains as it is. You're looking outside. It's a nice sunny day. Nothing of particular notes has happened or whatever. That's... That's not what you have to price in. They know, I mean, you, you hear the World Economic uh, uh, Forum talk about how they're basically waiting for some great traumatic event in order to reset. I mean, that's the point of the Great Reset is it happens after something so huge, so big, that now everybody has to do this thing. I think complete breakdown of the sovereign debt crisis of countries going broke that's possible it could be as simple as that but what that's not very simple that means people dying in the streets from famine i mean we're talking about major major changes usually i mean whenever there's famines and hunger like it was in the great depression i mean we almost got taken over by communism just because there were enough hungry people and imagine if your neighborhood or your city didn't have enough food, how long do you think it would take for like mobs to, to show up? And how long do you think that it would take for security from those mobs to be like your number one thing? And then how long would it take for you to be like, we have to deal with these people. We need to have some kind of rules to do, you know what? I don't know. What I'm trying to say is that the people that you currently think would not be on board with this, all it takes is them being hungry. And all and in addition to the propaganda that will make whoever is against it seem like absolute monsters. That's, I think, something that you have to really, really believe is that when they have this ring of power in terms of propaganda, they will use it against their political enemies. And what will they do? Well, they'll make them look like slobbering, crazy monsters who, if only these 
uh, dissenters could be dealt with because they're basically the only things holding us back from eat, getting you and your children food. I mean, if it wasn't for these people who were, you know, bombing us periodically and doing these sort of things, if we could just deal with them, then we could have nice things, but we can't have nice things because of these people. I mean, and then add the AI to that, and they, they've already discovered which images and videos of that person makes is the ugliest and makes people hate them the most. There's no chance that the people that you currently think are be on your side will not hate you and turn you in and and everything else another reason that i am pessimistic about these tools of power that will prevent any resistance to complete totalitarianism madness is uh, kind of dovetails off the propaganda concept so if you agree that, yes, propaganda, getting that number to 70, 80% basically leaves us with no hope. It, it's such a mandate for power. Um, even if it's not 80, let's say it's 60 or 50, uh, it's still way, way beyond what historically has been uh, used. Um, so, well, then the question is, well, who, how do you control that propaganda? Well, the answer is it's who controls the companies. Um, you know, your social media companies, uh, more less and less these days, but, you know, your, your television stations and your radio stations, your newspapers. But these days it is more like the corporations, which, you know, there's huge conglomerates like Black, uh, BlackRock or whatever that that owns the is the majority shareholder in these companies. Because that's what I'm trying to say here is that the reason I'm pessimistic is that corporate structure um, in which... All you have to do is have a, a, if you have a blank check that like, let's say you were like a mega, mega billionaire and all you got together with all your other mega billionaire friends and you said, well, one strength that we have is basically unlimited money. I mean, all the money that gets printed by governments basically is, you know, being printed by us. We are the, you know, the, the central banks, that's, that's whoever owns the banks own is shareholders in the, in the federal reserve. So who owns the banks? And I mean, it's just who, we don't even know who owns the banks. I mean, the shareholders are oftentimes not even uh, understood. So, but there is somebody who is the beneficiary of these blank checks that can essentially print themselves free money. And even if you didn't believe in the sort of central bank idea that a lot of people, that very few people are able to essentially have unlimited money and therefore unlimited everything. Um, you could still say, well, there are people out there that uh, have so much money and it, it does appear with the World Economic Forum that they have decided to get together and to pool their money together for one goal. And that goal seems to be to control the corporations to do what they say is climate change and other sort of goals. Depopulation seems to be one of them. Uh, but they, but that's all you need to know. The people with, with that wouldn't even think, I mean about writing a check to control Fox Corp or the New York Times. I mean, that's nothing to them. It's like, oh, how much do I have to, 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 to write this check for in order to be a majority shareholder in that? Uh, through my company, through this company and that shell company and that shell company, sure. But, but so what I'm saying is that if you have, if you got the people with all the money together and they had the same goal, which I would probably say is Satanism, but even if you didn't think that, but they actually just really believed their their lies or maybe they didn't believe the lies they knew it was lies but they were just wanting the control because power is an end uh, of itself they rightly recognize that all you have to do is write these checks to become majority shareholders and now you control the monster you control and now you have become essentially untouchable 
because you control the corporations, uh, especially if you can get like a, a hedge fund like Blackstone, who has a much sh uh, smaller group of uh, of shareholders, you know, or, uh, or board members, let's say, and the people that control those board members and the majority shareholders of BlackRock, if you will. Um, those people now are a smaller number of people that essentially own all the other corporations. So now you have this huge thing that the, the control is so much easier through corporations. And it's, it's more palatable to people than the old form of control, which was the government, you know, in a communist system, you know, so that's the stakeholder capitalism model of the World Economic Forum, which is one of the reasons I'm so pessimistic, is because all the tools and the military uh, industrial complex that will control the slaughter bots and all the propaganda and all the prisons and all the police forces and all the politicians are controlled by people who just have money. And the reason I'm pessimistic about that is because that system is too difficult to figure out in order to wrestle that power from them. You would say, because let's say in the French Revolution or something, it was simple. It was just the people in the palace. You know, there was just, that was your people. The, pe the people that have been calling themselves kings, like they live in one place, deal with them, then you've taken the power back. Now, that is not, it, it's, it's not how it works because the power is in shell company after shell company after shell company and you have to go so many deep to even find the names of the people who, you'll never know the names. Corporate structure is such that you will never know the names of the people who own the things that are really important. And so, and what, let's say the whole system collapses even, you know, that there is nuclear war and a, and a, and a winter that kills all the crops and everything else. The dust settles from that, quite literally, and the power still hasn't changed hands because it's still the power is the fundamental thing is who controls the nukes, who controls the military. And the answer to that is always who can pay the military. So it keeps coming back to the money. So if they still have the money and they still have the resources because they've been accumulating all the real wealth of the world, because what are you going to do when you get that much money? You just start buying everything because it's. And so I guess what I'm saying is that when the dust settles from an economic collapse, a worldwide pandemic, a, a famine, all the things that could possibly happen, they still have the actual power that matters. And the people that could do anything about it are now way less people. So let's say a nuclear holocaust does happen. Not only do you are you now dealing with like a couple billion less people to be mad at you, but and a couple billion less people to feed, but you're now also way more powerful than them, you know, because maybe if you were the one that unleashed whatever it was that caused such calamity, you knew where to go uh, in order to, you know, save your uh, people and your wealth and all these things. So you didn't actually get affected by the thing. So now you're, you, you started up the new reset with you so much more powerful than the other people in the way that I think that, um, they always wanted it since the French Revolution when the monarchy, monarchies worldwide were essentially overthrown. They didn't like that very much. I've talked about this before about how, you know, the palaces and these things in Europe is just so grandiose. There's so much of a power gap between the kings and the peasants. It wasn't even close. And I think that that's the way that, that even if it's not the same people, that want that power back because it's not, they're long dead. These are their grandchildren, if, if anything. It's the nature of power that wants that separation 
from the, the especially if you already have this huge amount of money where you don't need any more money money who needs money i've got all the money then it's just power and it, and then that power becomes your new thing that you want more and more and more of until you want it so much different than you want a slave and you want to rule them like a king that's where that the natural this is where this is going kings and peasants because that's where it just that's where it will end up and the bible says that i mean this is a bible prophecy podcast so I probably should start tying this into Bible prophecy. I won't go into the timeline here. If you want to check out the something like three-hour series, the Bible prophecy timeline series, you can check it out on my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com, or on the YouTube channel. But basically, I think that when the dust settles from this reset, because I think that, as I said, without divine intervention, without God saying, well, it's not time for this yet, which he can do if he chooses to, but if it runs the course that it seems like it's set to run, then this, this uh, gl global coup d'etat will happen and that we will go into a really bad version of totalitarianism, one that is obviously evil. And what's worse, that will, I think when the dust settles, it will be 10 kings that rule it. Because I think that, and this could be my bias and doing the thing that Christians have done throughout all history, which is demand that the end times is in their lifetime. And my one concession to that is saying, okay, well, this thing that's being built, it could be the 10 kings, you know, when the dust settles. I mean, it's not now, but it could be. And it might actually be real kings. I think that, like I said, the power dynamics are such that the people with the real power, they want to be kings and they want everybody else to be slaves. So I wouldn't doubt if what we go into after that is a real literal world being uh, controlled with a lot less resources uh, and everything else by 10 kings. Um, but in any case, whatever, if it is the 10 kings and whenever the 10 kings uh, show up, it will only be the first stage of the Ten Kings. This is sort of the thesis of that I'm most burdened about. And one of the reasons I want to make this uh, film is that Christians are in great danger of doing what is the most natural thing to do at that point. To the degree, you know, the, the church will be underground at this point. There'll be, you know, if it is like a woke, crazy, uh, resource-starved world that's totally evil, obviously Christians are going to be persecuted. They're going to be censored. Uh, maybe a generation of censorship of good doctrine and, and the Bible will, will be uh, will happen. But in any case, uh, there will be killing. There will be obviously an evil and ten king situation. So what I'm saying is that it will be natural for Christians to say, "Look at this! It's here. Bible prophecy has now happened. The nuclear war that was a uh, Gog Magog or something, and now we're here. This ten king situation is the Antichrist. That's the big thing. If they say it is the Antichrist." And that whoever rules it, let's say there's a single person over the Ten Kings or something, he is the Antichrist and they'll manipulate his name to be whatever they want. They'll find some way to make it 666, even if it's obviously not. And they'll make whatever, you know, it obviously is going to have a central bank digital currency. So that'll be no a no-brainer for them to be the mark of the beast. And they'll, they'll make a false prophet. They'll make whatever, you know, it's never been a real problem for Christians to sort of twist scripture to make it be the end times. Just look at literally all of Christian history to find them uh, making whatever it is that's happening in their timeline a picture of revelation. So I'm not too worried about Christians finding a way to shoehorn it in there. But the problem is that this time they're going to be as close as they ever have been because it really will be the Ten Kings. But what they're missing is that the Bible is very explicit that the Antichrist comes on the scene in opposition to the Ten Kings. 
He destroys and subdues three of them at first in literal battle, comes out of nowhere, is able to somehow break this unbreakable system through some kind of new ability. Out of nowhere, he's able to defeat three of the kings. The rest of the uh, seven, is they, they capitulate to him. They now give it over to him. His first order of business is to do the most pro-Israel thing in the world to basically give them back their uh, their ability to to have their covenant. Presumably the ten kings will do like all other heads of the beast and control Israel to its uh, detriment. So he comes on the scene as a liberator explicitly in scripture. These are things that, that Christians aren't prepared for. They aren't prepared for the Antichrist to be a good guy. Literally every version of modern version of, of the Antichrist has the Antichrist just being the worst version of whatever they're the most scared of. And listen carefully, that is Satan's plan. He needs the future church to believe that this system is the Antichrist. He needs them to hate it. He needs the whole world to despise it, to live as long as possible under its totalitarian, brutal boot. He needs destruction. He needs all of that because to the degree that he can torture uh, humanity for that first half uh, when I'm saying not the Antichrist himself, but just general Satan bad stuff for, for the first half or whatever, the first phase of the 10 Kings before the Antichrist even shows up, that that totalitarian system benefits Satan to no end. As long as the church, the underground church at that time believes like they believed when the Catholics were torturing Christians, they absolutely believe that the Catholic church was the end times because they were killing Christians. They need during that time, that first phase of the 10 Kings, the, the fake bad guy, uh, they need to, he needs people to believe that that's the end times. Because when he saves them from it, he needs you, the church, to believe that that's the Savior. And so no, and right now, we're all sitting ducks for that. Because no one, as far as I know, very few Christians actually even believe that it's possible for them to be deceived in the end times. Because they already believe that they'll know it when they see it, because it'll be whatever I hate the most. I mean, it'll be what I hate. Obviously, I'm not going to fall in love with whatever I hate, and so it's the, uh, it's the perfect setup for actual deception. And that's what uh, Jesus's warning in the Olivet Discourse was about. I think I've done a, a study showing that the majority of Christ's words in the Olivet Discourse are saying, hey, don't fall for a false Messiah. Anyway, uh, so that's the Bible prophecy tie-in. But overall, I mostly want to say to people um, to mentally prepare for this worst case scenario. Look, I am a... a, a uh, chicken Little I have been from the day that I was born. I just can't not be Chicken Little. And as a result, I am wrong all the time. So this consider this a worst case scenario that you should at least uh, tuck away in your heart as a possibility that maybe things won't all be okay. And maybe um, we're not going to be saved by a politician and that this just is going to a bad place. Because I feel like the, the to the degree that you can be there mentally is the degree that you can go ahead and move past the worst case scenario in your heart so that you can be ready to help the people who no doubt will not have thought of this ahead of time. Because our hope is not in this world turning out okay. Our hope is in literal eternity. We will literally get the thing that the New World Order people are being lied to about, which is eternal life. We really will be alive forever in something that we can't even imagine, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has in store for those 
who love him. There is something else in eternal life. We've been given, our hope is in that eternal life and not in what's going to happen in this world. And if our hope is truly in that eternal life, we are going to be better equipped to deal with the hard things in this life and to help other people through these, the no doubt suffering that's uh, uh, coming upon the world, even if that suffering is just another cycle of totalitarianism and not the end times. But if it is the end times, then we've got something else to worry about, which is this great deception of the Antichrist. Okay, so that took a lot longer than I was thinking it would. So what I will do is take what I will record after this, which is a discussion on a very tricky verse in Luke 21, and I will relegate that to the new podcast and just have it be exclusive content for the Bible Prophecy Daily podcast, which I mentioned at the outset of this. So if you want to hear the Luke 21 uh, content, go subscribe to the Bible Prophecy Daily podcast, and it will be uh, released sometime uh, soon. I don't uh, have control of when it will be released, but uh, presumably sometime uh, in the next few weeks. Okay, so that's it for me. We will see you next time. Go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com, and I'll talk to you then. Bye.